0: Though we have a presidential inauguration in front of us this upcoming week, um, our nation is still, of course, reeling from the assault on the Capitol not so many days ago. Uh, I'm not going to comment on that any more than that, just stating it, uh, except to point out maybe this: it's it's interesting to note, it's sobering to note, the sad history that our nation does have, indeed, with moments of civil unrest. You have actually a long history, much longer than, than I was certainly aware of, even this this past week as I began to delve into this. Now, let me just read you uh, the, the names, as historians refer to these events, just from the 1700s. Just from the 1700s, a series of civil unrest, riots that took place in cities, especially up in the Northeast. The Pennsylvania Mutiny, 1783. Shays' Rebellion, 1786. The Paper Money Riot, 1786. The Doctor's Mob Riot, 1788. The Whiskey Rebellion, 1791 through 1794. The Freeze Rebellion, 1799 through the year 1800. How does such things start? These big moments in our history books. How does such things start? It's a mix of things. It's a mix of things. It's always a mix of things, of external factors and internal factors as well. Things going on in the outside and things going on in the inside. And that's true not just, again, of the big events that you can read about in the history books, but the little more immediate personal events, our own personal conflicts, whether it's taking place on the playground or the classroom or the boardroom, or just in the car going up and down the interstate between here and Nashville on I-24. It's always the, the stuff on the outside is coming forth from the stuff on the inside. That's the way it always works. That's the way it always, always works. The unrest from within is what drives the unrest without. Or put it another way, The unrest around us always flows out of the unrest within us. That's the way it always happens. Trace it back, trace it back, trace it back. The stuff, the mess between us, whether just two people or hundreds and thousands, you trace it back, it always begins with the unrest within us. That's where it always, always starts. So what's the solution? What's the answer? You know the answer. When the question is put before us in that way, we know the answer. What's the answer to the unrest within my heart, within your heart, within all of our hearts? What's the answer? That we would find rest. Well, where can that be found? And whom can that be found? If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Psalm 131. Psalm 131, we are continuing on in our series through the Songs of Ascent. Uh, that begins with Psalm 120 and goes on through 134. Uh, this is a section in the Psalter uh, some many, many years ago that was put together by the, the editors of the Psalms uh, and, and it was, it was a, a gathering, a, a collection of psalms that the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims in the Old Testament era, as they were making their way to the temple, to Jerusalem, ascending, hence the songs of ascents. To get to Jerusalem you've got to go up, just look at it topographically, that's the way it works. As the pilgrims were making their way up, up to Jerusalem, whether from north, south, east, or west, they were, hey, here, sing these as you go. Sing them to, individually. Sing them even more importantly, co- corporately, collectively, together as you go. And we as pilgrims, we as pilgrims need to learn to sing these our, ourselves as well and, and what they mean. Well, Psalm 131 is where we are here this morning. It is indeed short, but don't let that fool you. Oh, Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray for a moment. Lord Jesus, thank You. Thank You for these words, words that You, Yourself, sung with Your disciples, with Your parents when You were young, traveling to temple, with Your disciples as You traveled to the temple. But even more, not only did you sing these words, so they certainly have your stamp of approval, but really we have to say you wrote them. So all the more, all the more, if we be your followers, if we be your disciples, we have to learn what this means, and we have to learn what it is to sing it. And we have to yield ourselves here. And we ask, oh Jesus, that you would please be working even in our midst, even in this moment, even in this time. Whether we're here in person or watching this streamed, wherever we are, in whatever state that you find us in, our heart's state, you know how to reach us and you know what needs to be reached. And we yield to you now. And ask for your blessing that you would be our instructor. Amen. COVID-19's effects, of course, of course, have been wide and deep. And the world of sports is no exception to that. I've said this on several occasions in several conversations in, in recent weeks. That really, you, the, the record keepers down the road really would do well to put an asterisk in the books by every single team or individual that wins a championship in, in this time because, of course, there's so, there are so many, have been and will be for quite some time, so many variables in play that are completely out of the control of, of the coaches and the players no matter what the sport may, may be. Uh, proving to be Just incredibly disruptive, incredibly disruptive in in terms of thinking in terms of a coach of knowing how to run the practices and who's going to be available because of COVID tests or quarantines or just, you know, Frank coming right down to it, players on a team who are just, you know, they're sick. They're actually, it's the illness themselves. And it's insanely, incredibly disruptive to a team's ability to practice, to say nothing of then take the field or the court. And it can really determine the outcome, has, has, if you really delve down into it, has determined the outcome of no few games, whatever the sport may be, and frankly, they're in turn the course of a whole season. So there you go, your asterisks. That's why you've got to put them there in, in the record books. The presence, think with me just for a moment, the presence or absence of a key coach or a key player Can have a tremendous impact, can make a tremendous difference on the outcome of the game, the season, the playoffs, whatever the case may be. Well, in many respects, that idea is what you see going on here in Psalm 131 the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord making a tremendous difference, having a tremendous impact in the life of the believer. The presence of the Lord and the assurance of His presence. The, the, the idea, that the, the promise and the impact of that promise and that assurance that He indeed is, is with us. Now, now, who are we talking about here? Well, if you go to Isaiah 9, you know, the, where He's described as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. Or if you go into, say, Psalm 46, we have the Lord of hosts or the God of Jacob. Or elsewhere, He's described as the chief cornerstone or the horn of salvation or into revelation, the, uh, the resurrection and the life, the Alpha and the Omega. This one is with us. Indeed, did not Jesus say this to His disciples right on the cusp of His ascension, Behold, I am with you always, to the very end of the age. Oh, my friends, if we would believe that, if we could actually, actually hear that and let the wonder of that wash over us, form the the grounding, the the foundation that which we we stand on and the air in which we we breathe, that we could grasp something of the significance of the, the idea, the reality, the assurance... The Lord is with us. I mean, my goodness, that's His name, right? Jesus comes, the incarnate God in the flesh. And how does He reveal Himself? As the culmination, the fulfillment of the age-old promise, Emmanuel. God with us. With us now. Not later. Now. The wonder of that and the transformative effect of that is what this psalm is about. Psalm 131. The Lord is with us. We need to hear and hold to that. The Lord is with us. We need to hear and hold to that. Now, what would that look like? What what does that mean? Uh, We've got three points. You've got your outline there in front of you. This is where we're going. Uh, The first thing having to do with a deep restlessness that is there. Inevitably, when we don't know this, outside of this assurance of His presence, a deep, profound soul's restlessness. Now, the counter to that, the second point, is a sweet contentment to the degree that we're embracing and hearing this promise, this assurance of His being with us. And all of that is rooted down deep with a deep hope, a real hope, and no pale imitation. Okay, so the restlessness, the contentment, and the hope. Let's go. So first, this deep restlessness that we see here, at least implied in this psalm. A deep restlessness. This is beyond, beyond just a searching. This is an earnest inner yearning, a disturbed yearning of the heart. It's an insistence, an absolute insistence. And you see it pictured In this other child that's assumed as part of the psalm. Not the child that's weaned, but before that, the child that's still yet nursing. Okay? You see this insistence implied in the child that is not weaned, but the child that is yet nursing. This stands for, this represents, this points us towards the heart's attitude that says, I know my needs. I know, hey, mom. I know what I need to be fed. I know how I need to be fed. I know when I need to be fed. Now feed me. I know my needs. That's the heart's attitude that's being pointed towards here with this child that's still yet nursing. It's meant to point us towards a stage of immaturity, a state of immaturity. It's not where we're supposed to to be, not where we're supposed to, to stay. So we know our needs, And because we know our needs and insist that we know our needs, we then cry out for them. We demand what we deem to be indispensable. We demand what we deem to be indispensable. Again, it's meant to point us towards a stage of immaturity. And everyone around this child can see it except the child. And the tantrums, the screaming and shouting... Whether externally or internally, prove it. This insistence, this insistence that we know what we need and the demanding for it, that has its roots down in an arrogance. This insistence has its roots down in a deep, ugly heart's arrogance. Psalm 131, verse 1. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, in the Hebrew and Semitic culture, in the Old Testament era, what this, this language is, it just makes sense, right? For the heart to be lifted up, for the eyes to be raised high is, 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 is an image of pride. It's a self-inflated view, an overly self-inflated view. It's I'll Put it this way. It's a self-exaltation. Okay? And out of that self-exaltation comes a self-directing. And you see that in, as, as you keep reading the verse. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Again, we're, we're, so this is the, the assumed. This is in the background. This is the, the child that's yet still nursing. This is the, so, this is the heart state that's occupied. The occupied with what? Occupied with self. Con- so, occupied, concerned with, pursuing, focused upon, What I believe about myself and what I think I know and what I need and demanding and insisting all upon it. So this nursing child in the background, implied in this these three verses of this psalm, this nursing child points us towards this deep restlessness, this insistence that's grounded and driven by this heart's arrogance. It's not a pretty picture. No doubt, no few of you have heard this adage, pride comes before the fall. Pride comes before the fall. And, and that is uh, something that holds true not just in ancient literature, but ancient history as well. Uh, maybe the king, the, this name uh, may ring a bell for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Speaking of ancient history, King Nebuchadnezzar um, was the king of, of Babylon and uh, he was brazen enough to have a giant, colossal, golden statue made of himself, and then an edict was given out and sent out into all the kingdom that his people were actually to bow down and worship this golden statue of himself. Later on in in Daniel, we, we read that in Daniel chapter 4, We read that one day he was actually looking out over his kingdom and uh, thinking about his accomplishments and his great might and his great power, and his heart was revealed in his speech. And this is what we read, Daniel 4, starting in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, he was walking. This is Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and says... Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And those of you who are familiar with Nebuchadnezzar's life, you know that immediately he was struck down with insanity by the Lord in judgment and lost, that, lost all that he was you know, looking out over and taking such great pride in. Pride does come before the fall. It would be appropriate, though sobering, but right still, to ask a question here at this point. Is that me? Is that you? Is that us? To what degree are we caught... In the trap, ensnared in this insistence before the Lord, I know what I need, give it to me. You may not actually say that, but that could really be where your heart's attitude is before Him. Is that us? An insistence that we know and a demanding attitude that we get what we get when we want it. Is that me? Is 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 that you? It's a really h- ugly, it's a hard, it's a hard but necessary question to ask. And, but how do you get there? How do you get at the answer? Well, let me just suggest this if I can. You can get there at least partially by looking at your emotions as tied to your disappointments. Like how strong are your emotions? Attached to those disappointments that you feel in life. Okay, so here's some examples. So you don't get the raise you thought was coming, or the deal falls through, or that person in that relationship that you were hoping for rejects you, or your candidate didn't win. How strongly do you respond? How mad are you? How sad are you? And what does that point towards? What does that tell you in terms of where your hope has been all along? And, 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 and perhaps this, this terrible dynamic of this, this restlessness and this insistence and this arrogance of thinking you know. Friends, the Lord knows. The Lord is with us. We need to hear and hold to that. He is with us. We need to hear and hold to that. Now, that then takes us to the the next point, and it takes us to the child who's right there in front of us in the the Psalms. I've been talking about the one who's kind of hiding there, but who's clearly been there the whole time. Now we're looking at not the, the nursing child, but the weaned child. So that takes us to to verse 2, moving from deep restlessness to sweet contentment. But, immediately you see a contrast here, right? Immediately, just with that first word. But, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, this is an image of dependence, to be sure, the child looking to the mother. But it's, it's, it's not the kind of dependence that you may immediately think. Be- because at this point, the child is, is not actually depending on what the mother gives. The child is ultimately not looking to what the mother provides. The child, a, a, a completely, a revolution has taken place in the relational dynamics between this child and the mother at this point, shifting from nursing to weaning. No longer is the child looking to and insisting on and feeling just this ultimate deep-seated need upon what the mother provides, but upon just the mother. Not the provision, but the provider. That's a completely different relationship. A revolution has taken place. In the relationship between the child and the mother at this, at this point. The child's eyes are indeed still lifted up. But not in arrogant insistence. But in humble dependence. In true relationship, it's, there's a maturity level. that's moved forward here as it's meant to be. As it's meant to be. It's, it's, and you may be wondering, well, wait... I, this, sounds, this language sounds familiar, doesn't it? The, the, the eye is lifted up. It should. If you remember going back earlier in the Songs of Ascent, uh, Psalm 121, not 131, 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So in that sense, it's good. It's good to have your eyes lifted up in that sense so long as they're lifted up to the Lord. Or you read on the Psalm 123, to you. I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. In that sense, of course it's good and right and beautiful that our eyes would be lifted up, but not in haughty, proud, arrogant insistence on knowing what we need, but looking to Him and trusting Him and leaning into Him, which then takes us to the deep roots of this dependence, a humility. The the, the roots are just as deep as with the other child. It's just a completely different... Not in arrogance and pride, but in humility. In humility. And you you see this beautiful, sweet image of, of peace here. This one who has been calmed and quieted, which implies, of course, that there had been a time of much internal movement and motion and disturbance, but that's given way to the calm and the quiet because a yielding has taken place and therein a peace has come. A peace has come with an ability to rest, an ability to trust as the child is, just get the image in your mind, as this child is leaning into his mother. And that's good enough able to just lean into his mother. The weaned child is pointing us towards this humble contentment that the Lord intends, that he's, can I just put it this way, looking for in us. I mean, it's after all exactly what we were seeing there in Matthew 18 a little while ago. I want to read it to you again, Matthew 18, verses 1 to 4. It's just such a Amazing picture, this a moment in Jesus' ministry with His disciples and uh, how, how, how striking it must have been for them. And uh, Psalm eight, How instructive. Psalm 18, verses 1-4. to four. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, "'Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven?' And calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, "'Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children,' you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven this is a completely different way of coming to and living before the lord and as i said with the last point there in terms of thinking about application and the implications and where to go with this and then asking the question is that me it's a similar question that I think would be helpful to be asked at, at this point, but it would, it's a little different, and it's, it goes like this regarding this contentment and the humility that that's, it's rooted down in. Could the people who know me describe me this way? Could the people who know me describe me This way. Now that's probably a really uncomfortable question for most of us to ask, and I say most because a few of us are deluding ourselves into thinking that that the answer would be fine. Could the people that know me honestly, truly describe me this way? Why is this hard for us? Why is this? humble trust, this leaning, this resting, this sweet contentment, why does that come so hard to us? It might have to do with our present ugly circumstances. I mean, it, it, just to be honest, let's just call it that. It, it could be that that it's so hard that the pain is so acute, that the noise is so loud, it's just hard to, to have any sense of rest at all just because of the, the present mess that you're, you're in. And that, that, that could be. It may have less to do, though, with our present, though. and For many of us, it may have more to do with our, our past. It may have to do with uh, a betrayal. It may have to do with wounds, Somethings somewhere else, sometime else that someone else has done to you that make it so hard to really actually trust anyone. even Jesus. Even Jesus. My friend. You can talk to Him about that. Again, He's with us. He's with us so we can talk to Him about even the most painful struggles that we have. He's with us. He's here. He's assured us of this. Oh, that we could hear this and then hold to it. Now, that then takes us into the third point. Um, how is this possible? How would it be possible for us to be, to be able to really uh, lean into Him this way and trust Him in this way and rely on Him this way? Well, that then takes us to this greater hope. Uh, verse 3 of, uh, of Psalm 131. O Israel... Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. David is giving us here a whole different perspective. And it's quite likely that this is a a perspective as he's looking back over his life. He's able to really all the more earnestly, honestly, reflectively say these things. Let let me read to you these words from uh, D.A. Carson in Volume 2 of his exceptional devotional guide for the love of God, okay? Uh, And this is what Carson writes regarding this particular psalm. One cannot finally prove the point, but I suspect this psalm is easier to understand if it springs from the end of David's life after he's been humbled by such matters as Bathsheba and Uriah and by the revolt led by his son Absalom, humbled less quick to imagine he alone understands slower to take umbrage, and more impressed by the wise providence of God, David, one imagines, now quietly writes, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, and then reading on through the psalm. That may well be the case. I think Carson's got a point. I think he's got a really good point. That scenario makes a whole lot more sense David being able to say this as a man looking back later, late in fact, in his life, as opposed to as a younger man with really not a lot of mileage. Uh, David likely speaking from the voice of experience, knowing all too well, all too well, how many other potential hopes there are out there. All the other competing hopes that there are. David knowing well how attractive and deceptive those hopes can be. David knowing all too well how alluring and ensnaring all those other hopes can be. And out of that perspective... He then speaks. Out of that perspective, out of that vantage point, he then, there comes this admonishment, this imperative, this yearning, this urging to the people, my people, my friends, be stayed upon the Lord. Be stayed upon the Lord. Look to Him. Look to Him through all things, in all things, in every way. Look to Him. He is your place of rest. The Lord is your place of rest, the one whose eyes are set upon you, the covenant God, whose eyes cannot get off of you. Look to Him whose eyes are set on, on you. He is your hope. He is your rest, and there is no other. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The Lord is our hope. And you get the sense of an exclusivity here with what David is saying, right? Right? He alone is our hope. He alone is our hope. Now, how might that play itself out? Recognizing that there are a lot of sad imitators, a lot of sad pretenders vying for our attention and our affection. How might that play itself out? The exclusivity of Him being our one place of rest, Him being our one true hope. You know, I wish somebody had told me this when I was a younger man in high school. I really do. That romantic relationship you think will be the end all be all for what you need is not. Some writers have referred to that that perspective as looking for the apocalyptic romance, it doesn't exist. It's like like two drowning people adrift in the waves thinking that together they're going to reach the shore when all they're really going to do is take each other down faster. Your hope is not in the great romance. Your hope is not in a great hero, in a great mortal man or woman. This past year, I won't go into the names, Some a few may come into mind, the scandals, the horrible tales of failure and failings and falling, but last year wasn't anything new. It happens every year, and it'll happen this year. We cannot put our hope in a great hero, a man or woman, mortal, finite and fallen like we are. They can't bear that kind of weight. That kind of pressure. You can't put the weight of your hopes on a worm-eaten steak of balsa wood. It's not going to hold. We can't afford to put our hopes in the great romance, the great hero. We cannot do it in politics. We cannot do it in our government or in the politicians within our government, or whatever your political theory may be. I don't care. I really don't care at this point. It could be somewhere on the left. It could be somewhere on the right. It doesn't matter what your view of America is and what it's supposed to be, what it supposedly was supposed to be. where it's. It doesn't matter. America, whatever your vision of that may be, cannot save you. It cannot save you. Who is our hope? Look at the text. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. He is our hope, our only hope, the only one that can sustain the weight of our hope. He's with us. Oh, that we would hear and hold to that. He is with us. We, I, you know, I cannot. we cannot say that enough. He is with us. That is the age-old, ancient, beautiful old, before the beginning of time promise. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. And it just becomes blazingly more clear as time, as the centuries roll by. And then Jesus comes. God is with us. The promise being that nothing, nothing can rupture. Nothing within, inside this relationship or outside that relationship can rupture that relationship. Nothing can come between the Lord and His people. That's what He's told us. Nothing can separate Him from you. Not even you. Nothing. Again, his name is what? Emmanuel, God with us. Well, how, how can I know that? And I know you're telling me that. I know that's what I'm reading, but how do, I, how do I know that? Down in the depths of my soul, what will pass? The 3 a.m. test, right? When you're awake at night and you can't get back to sleep and you're completely unsettled because of your doubts and your fears and you're wondering about these things, is he with me or, or not? And that's actually what's at the root of it all. How do we have an answer to that question? Here's the answer. Here's how we can know that the words of David are going to hold because of the finished work of the son of David, Jesus the Christ. That's how you can know these words will hold because of the finished work of his descendant, the son, the king, the greater king. We can trust the words of this ancient king of old because the ancient king of eternity endured an eternal separation, an eternal alienation, the full-on judgment that we deserve, that we had coming. He took it all in our place, and that's how you can know. Or let me put it this way. He took the absence of God, he experienced the absence of God that we might forever know and experience the presence of God. That's how we can know. And for he forever bears the scars, lest we ever doubt. He still bears those scars forever to forever assure us that He is with us and He'll never let us go. Remember what we saw weeks ago in Psalm 129? He is the God of the furrowed back. Forever bearing the wounds that we forever would have assurance of these things. Friends, the Lord is with us. Oh, that we would hear and hold to that. Can we pray? Lord Jesus, would you please help us to hear and hold to these things that He is with us, He is with us, He is with us, God is with us, that each one of us in this moment, wherever we are before you, would really be able to hold to and know and believe He is with me. He is with me. And may that bring the calming and the quieting to the moving and disturbed, violent heart. Oh, would you still our stormy souls. Oh, would you bring rest to the unrest within us. And then, out of that, would you make us into a people that bring peace to the unrest around us with this message, with this posture, this state of being that we're living in, a peace ultimately found in you such that we are settled, we are trusting, we are leaning like the weaned child with his mother.